Let's bring him in. Syracuse guy. Lived in Chicago, covered the Bulls, knows the city, covering the NBA and uh, with a focus on the Golden State Warriors these days for ESPN. Always a pleasure to welcome on the program Nick Friedel back on the block, ESPN Radio. Nick, how you doing, buddy? Jax, it is always good to be with you and hear your voice, especially now, my man. Absolutely. So you and I were chatting a little bit off the air. So tell us what life in quarantine's like for you out in Cali. Uh, it is a ghost town out here. Uh, you see, I'm in San Francisco now. You see, you know, the people that are trying to get their jog in or get a little run in or walk the dog. Uh, and and then you see the people that if you walk down one side of the sidewalk, they want to go to the other end because they don't want to be near anybody. It's it's weird for everybody. It's weird all over. The one good thing out here, X, is that uh, they shut everybody down early. So we're like on week six or seven of of quarantine out here, and they've seen the, the, the curve go down, which is great. It's just like everywhere else. Nobody has a clear-cut answer as to when things can even get back to potentially being normal again. And then, of course, what does normal look like uh, when that reappears? But uh, at least out here, uh, everybody has, has taken the precautions pretty well and, and done what they're supposed to do. Now, Nick, you brought it up how – California cities in California were early and I always like to get a perspective of somebody who covers the league on this because it was the NBA shutting down Rudy Gobert and that whole thing that really made this mainstream if you were somebody that you know had kind of heard about yeah that thing that was going on in China or what the heck was this thing when the NBA shut down and then of course the ACC tournament and all the hoops the next day and then all the sports within like 48 hours just everybody hits the pause button taking the lead of the nba it was adam silver in that league shutting down after one positive case where everybody started to say wait a minute this thing is serious and here we are just over a month later uh still reeling in it Jack, that's exactly right when they make the movie about what's going on here in the last couple months, I think the opening scene is the Oklahoma City team doctor racing to the floor before that Thunder Jazz game tipped off because that's kind of seared in everybody's memory like, whoa, whoa, what, what's happening here? Uh, and then the, the Gobert test comes back the way it does, and then Donovan Mitchell's test comes back, and the dominoes fell from that point. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the NBA is at the forefront of all this because the NBA uh, – took the, the, the first major steps in the country to shut it all down. So uh, that's why with, with everything going on, uh, I, I, I'm holding out hope that they can figure out what to do with the quarantine bubble and, and how to find ways to potentially make games happen again. But I, I, I would be shocked at this point if the NBA came back and was able to uh, not only get the league back up and running, but play in some kind of bubble for a few months to crown a champion this season. That that would stun me reading and seeing the information that's coming out uh, like all of us are. Governor Newsom in California has been saying this, Governor Cuomo out here in New York, and now the NBA, Woj reporting today, Nick, that, you know, Phased in, slowly but surely, where it's allowed, some facilities could reopen in the league, right? And it would be socially distanced. I think they said only four players at a time and no coaches could be there. But 
you know, hey, we'll take it, right? Slow but sure steps that the NBA professional sports is, is trying to figure out a way back here. Uh, what have you heard about that, and, and, and how long do you think this process could be here as they phase it back in? X, they're going to try. I mean, that's the one thing in, in talking to people throughout the league. They're not going to call it off until they absolutely have to do so. And let's be real here. The reason for that is the money. We're talking about millions upon millions going into billions of dollars that's on the line uh, as far as the, the TV deals and as far as the gate receipts uh, night to night, especially at the playoff games that the league would be losing out on. There is still some hope for sure. I mean, there, there are people that are saying, all right, well, this is one step and there are many others, but let's see what else happens. But the reality is just because the restrictions are eased off in Georgia and and players on the Hawks may be able to go into their facilities. I mean, I'm sitting out here in in California. I was walking down the street. I saw a couple of uh, the Warriors uh, staffers <laughs> the other day, and everybody just walked around shaking their heads because it's not the same. And that's the reality, not only the NBA, but, of course, everybody around the country is running into. Just because the NBA wants to take this step, and it's a nice step, doesn't mean that everybody's going to be able to make that step at the same time. And that's why, in the end, at least in my opinion, it would really, really surprise me if they got everything back up and running uh, and were able to finish this thing off. Nick, you, along with everybody else watching the Last Dance documentary, and as somebody who lived in Chicago, covered the Bulls, of course, let me ask you this. You were covering that team day in and day out for a while, not Jordan's Bulls, of course, but the Bulls. So you're in that city, and you feel like you've heard every story, and you know, have, have looked into what Jordan and Pippen and, and that dynasty meant. In watching these four episodes of The Last Dance so far, what have you learned about those teams that maybe you didn't know? I've learned uh, a lot. And the coolest part to me is even the people that lived it uh, day in and day out, I think even they're learning some stories that they didn't know. I mean, uh, for example, last night you, you knew about Phil Jackson's route to the Bulls and and the different minor leagues that he went through, especially even in upstate New York uh, as a coach uh, for a few years. But but when when they're telling the stories about him being in Latin America and, and him getting uh, you know stuff thrown at him and the environment that they were playing games in, you have more respect for the journey that he took to get himself to the position where he could be the Bulls head coach and could win all these titles over time. And and with Rodman, uh, you know, the, the stories of him going to Vegas and, and him being able to hit the button when he needed to as far as being able to focus and, and get the job done even when he hadn't slept and he was out partying all night and, and MJ crying on the bus. Uh, with his dad after they lost to the Pistons in, in 1990. All those little details coming out are awesome. And there are so many people that love that team for so long, grew up with that team. And for everybody to be in the spot that we're in right now as a country and for these stories to be coming out, I think it's really been cool because you realize even the people that were around those teams – they didn't know and understand every single complexity that went into the making of that dynasty. 
It's amazing, Nick, and you know, there's a lot of stories we can't repeat on the radio show. I can't even edit myself on Ron Harper's comment about not guarding Jordan. And just that's what I love. Just the the sincerity, the honesty, Jordan just letting it flow, going after guys. Isaiah Thomas, you can still see the bitterness from when they didn't shake hands after that ninety one series. But what I want to ask you is having worked in that city. How much of a hangover Jordan's Bulls and that dynasty had, even to today? I saw your comments in an ESPN story that they were asking some different writers what their takeaways were, and you said even go skip a couple generations. There was bitterness and jealousy about Tom Thibodeau when he coached there, and people wanting certain credit that didn't get it. It's it's amazing how you know time passes, but some of the same elements stay the same. Especially within that organization, action, and that's. The craziest part of all, and it's a it's a very good point because the Bulls, they have been run by the same people the same way for years and years and years uh, under Jerry Reinsdorf and now his son uh, Mike Reinsdorf. So to see some of those parallels, and to me, I covered those those Thibodeau Bulls when Derrick Rose was the MVP and Joe Kino was the Defensive Player of the Year, <laughs> and to see that that then uh, you know. Jerry Krause didn't like the fact that Bill Jackson and the players were getting so much credit and he wasn't getting enough. And, and Gar Foreman and John Paxson, that always frustrated them that the players weren't getting enough credit. And, and by proxy, they weren't getting enough credit. To think that that was almost two decades later and the same issues were going on uh, is unbelievable. But that's why the Bulls have this reputation around the league, and they've won all these titles, and, it, and everything that Michael and Scotty and that team accomplished has hovered over that organization for years and years. But the reality is they've never been able to escape uh, some of uh, the the elements that, that define that first title run and, and the jealousy and the, the lack of spending at times that that really hampered them. I mean, that has been a running theme in Chicago for the Bulls. Uh, for a long, long time. You know what intrigues me, Nick, is Jerry Krause is being made out to be the villain in this thing, and he deserves his fair share of criticism. I remember that the first time around. I was actually starting at Sports Talk Radio at the time saying, what the hell are you doing breaking up this team? But you just brought it up a moment ago. Jerry Reinsdorf's been there the whole time, and he's the guy that could have stopped that. He could have said, no, you're going to keep this team together, right? So I don't understand why Krause is taking such a heavy you know, blast here when Reinsdorf's the guy that, you know, uh, approved that plan. Well, and Axe, to your point, what's so interesting is, again, one of the knocks on the Bulls and, and Jerry Reinsdorf is that they have been too loyal to a fault to not only Jerry Krause, but John Paxson. Uh, I mean, it wasn't until a couple weeks ago that he was finally kind of kicked uh, to the back of uh, of. The, the spotlight, I mean, this is a team and this is an ownership group that prides itself on being loyal all the time to its employees. And what what Jerry Krause's comments, especially last night at the end of episode four, there's that story that comes out that says, hey, you know, the Bulls are doing great, but I just want to remind everybody, fills out at the end of the year, and, and if Michael wants to go somewhere else, like he can, but uh, but he won't be playing for Phil. The idea, X, that 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 was said. I mean, can you imagine one? Not only that being said now, that seems just unbelievable. But two, that Kraus was comfortable enough in the moment to say those things because he knew he was a made man. He knew 
that Jerry Reinsdorf had his back, and he knew that he would uh, choose Jerry, Jerry Krause over anybody. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Just, it's it, it shows you the operation that's in place, and Jerry Reinsdorf has a lot of support still in Chicago, and he has been a, uh, loyal to a lot of people. And I think, to your point, that's why he has kind of gotten out of taking the brunt of the criticism as we're all reliving that now. Reinsdorf could have stepped in for sure, but Reinsdorf trusted in Kraus to make the decisions and make those choices, and he did, and he stuck with him for years and years after that. The thing that I can't get over either, and I lived through it the first time, was what you just said. Rodman takes off for Vegas for 72 hours. In the Twitter era, no way. Jordan stories, like no just all these things we're hearing about, like it just doesn't. It, if it does happen, it's magnified times a hundred based on how the media and and the world is today. But even then, in the late nineteen nineties, I mean, you heard about some of this stuff certainly, and you know the internet was just coming around, but it would be nowhere near the big deal it is. Uh, not only are you absolutely right, but I, I would um, make this parallel. In the last year and a half, I've covered the Warriors. Part of the reason to me that the Warriors kind of uh, just couldn't find their rhythm or their way last season is because they got so sick and tired of answering the same questions, usually around Kevin Durant and what he was going to do at the end of the season. Everybody focused on that Draymond KD blow up in November uh, a year and a half ago. And absolutely, that caused some damage. But I think what bothered both of those guys and the rest of the team is that all they did was then answer questions about the same thing over and over and over again. And part of the reason they did that is because of the 24-hour news cycles, because the tweets never stopped coming. It's because they had to read and see it all the time. And I think that ties into why... The Bulls were able to not only block out all the noise in that last year and all the things that were going on, but they did not have to deal with all these extra layers of of, of the news stations covering it constantly and, and people reliving the same moment on social media all the time. I mean, that's the closest thing we've seen to the Bulls are the Warriors of last year. And in the end, I mean, I still think they would have rolled Toronto if, if Clay and and Kevin Durant uh, hadn't gotten hurt. But uh, the reality is the thing that just drove them crazy was all the extra attention that they had to deal with all the time. And that was not something, as much attention as the Bulls did get back in the day, that they got 20-plus uh, years ago. Nick, it's great to catch up with you, my friend. Stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, we'll definitely catch up down the road, but thanks uh, for the time and the insight as always, my friend. Always, my man. Stay safe. I'll talk to you soon. But right now, joining us on the Burdick Toyota Hotline, ladies and gentlemen, a Syracuse University grad who you can hear on the Buffalo Bills radio network. You can hear him on the mighty WGR 550 in Buffalo. Read him on WGR550.com. Sam Capacci Hill. Sam Capacci Hill. Sam Capacci Hill. Sam Capacci Hill. What's up, sir? Not much, buddy. I'm just sitting here on looking on Twitter, and I see the the term UFOs is trending. So I got a little scared. I'm like, what am I? What's going on here? Why is this trending? 
Apparently there's some like new footage that the Pentagon has released of unidentified aerial phenomena. All right. So when I'm done with you, let's just, I'm going to check that out. Let's man. just add that to the list. They, so they slipped that out there. We're so preoccupied with coronavirus. Like, yeah, aliens exist. <laughs> let's bury the lead on that one. No, because nobody cares right now. That's fantastic. Good stuff there. So, Sal, before we talk draft, I know uh, you know you've been watching the Last Dance, right? The Jordan documentary. What, what I have think, absolutely. What do you, what do you yeah. think of this thing so far? You know, uh, I have so much respect for Michael Jordan, and even more now through the first four episodes. And I know that in a lot of ways, like it's kind of slanted through his eyes. Like this was the, like something that he was a part of. So, you know, maybe there's things that you could put in there that were more critical or paint them in a negative light. But, you know, the fact of when you go back to think about how, you know, the other guys were partying and stuff and he just wasn't, didn't want that to be a part of his life and how hard he worked, what kind of a leader he was. And I'm sure he was tough to get along with in a lot of ways because of these things. But, you know, it really kind of makes me even open my eyes even more to how phenomenal he was both on and off the court and how dedicated he was to his craft. Also, you know, Jerry Krause seemed like he's pretty good at his job, but not very good at dealing with human beings, right. you know, and, and exactly. there's a lot of people we know like that, right? Well, I just talked with our good friend Nick Friedell, a Syracuse grad, uh, who covered that, the, not that Bulls team, but covered the Bulls, worked in Chicago, and I asked him, I said, listen, I understand the the villain that Jerry Krause is. I lived through this the first time, and I said it then, but how Jerry Reinsdorf seems to get a pass on all this is kind of yeah. beyond me. He was the owner the whole time. He let all this happen, yet it's Kraus that uh, takes the fall for it. Yeah, and he kind of was, was kind of warned a little bit, too, about Kraus's personality. Again, I mean, you can't argue with the, the rings, and he was there for championships. And I think he did a good job of building the team and had a vision of what he wanted it to be. But, boy, I just I think you know, his people skills were obviously lacking, and that was a big reason why, you know, at the end of the day, this thing kind of, fell apart in a lot of ways, but it's pretty phenomenal. It's pretty cool. I'm glad that they were able to do this. I, it's amazing to me that they followed this team around 20 years ago and we're getting this now. Yeah. It's kind of like, kind of like when Tiger King, when I was watching that and I'm like, I mean, I can't believe these people like had a camera crew following them around every day just to document things. And now we're getting this documentary. It's pretty cool. I have a, a documentary career that's been following me around for years, too. I'm not sure when I'm going to put that footage out. Uh, I'll, I'll surely let you know. I need you to sign a waiver for that, that time we were hanging out at the hockey game a month ago. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have my people call your people. All right? <laughs> all right, do that. Sal, moving on to the draft. Uh, look, by all means, I thought the Bills did what they needed to do. I thought uh, they, they really hit all the positions they needed to hit. And a little bit of a surprise with Jake Fromm as well. But let, let's just kind of... Decompress, take a deep breath as you look back on the weekend and in your review, what the Bills did. What really grabs you about the job Brandon Bean and crew did? Well, you know, it wasn't the, a flashy draft for them. Uh, they just went out and kind of got guys who are good football players who can fit on their team and, you know, compete to make the roster. If not, you know, be significant contributors. We know that this team is pretty set at most starting positions, if not all. I mean, they're returning, Brent, basically – 21 of 22 starters, and the only one they're not is going to be taken by Stefan Diggs. So, you know, they really just had to add to their uh, depth, basically, and to their competition. But you know what struck me is, as I, as I look back and I think about it, I really think that the loss in Houston in the playoff game played a role in how they built their team this offseason, their, their attack of it, and then especially maybe this draft. And what I mean by that is, you think about, they drafted a kicker, right, in the sixth round, and... You know, there were a couple opportunities in that game. One was a fourth and 27. One was an overtime where, 
maybe if you have a guy that can hit it from 60-plus in a dome, you end that game. You feel like you can get out there and you can make that field goal. And, you know, that probably stuck in their craw that they didn't really even have that option, not knowing if they would even make it. And then the other part was, you know, Duke Williams was the tall guy who had all the targets in that game. And it was kind of surprising that he wound up being the most targeted receiver. And there were a couple of plays he didn't come down with. So they drafted two taller receivers in this draft, uh, one being Gabriel Davis out of UCF and the other Isaiah Hodgins out of Oregon State. So I wonder if that game and that loss particularly kind of made them kind of you know go in that, those directions as far as what they need to get over the hump. Something I said on Friday came true today, and that was it would take a lot for me to be angry at a pick the Bills mm-hmm. made. Whereas in past administrations, frankly, that happened two or three times a draft, right? But I will sure. say the Jake Fromm pick surprised me. What did you think at the time? What do you think now looking back on it? Well, there's two parts of this. I am not surprised at all, and I even said that they would add another arm to the quarterback room before training camp. It just wouldn't make sense to do that. I didn't know if they would draft somebody or if they would sign an undrafted free agent. I, to me, it was always kind of a 50-50. Yeah, they might. When they got down to seven picks instead of nine after the Diggs trade, I'm like, hmm, I don't know if they draft a quarterback, maybe less likely, but I still expect them to add one one way or the other. Now, Jake Fromm, we can, I think that's where it comes in. Okay, you're not necessarily surprised, maybe, that they take a quarterback, but here's a quarterback who's the opposite of Josh Allen, right? He does not have a big arm. Uh, he is a guy that has thrown very few interceptions in college, considered highly intelligent, but not the kind of guy that really screams Buffalo weather and the way that you have to throw the ball here. But I will say this, Brent. He, he compares to me very favorably to Matt Barkley. That's who he is. And Barkley has those same traits, and that's who's been the backup for the last couple of years now here with the Bills, or a year and a half at least, and they really love what he brought to the table. And the other part is, you know, Barkley, he only has one year left in his deal, and Josh Allen is in his third year now. He does not need that veteran backup presence to learn from on a daily basis. So I think what they did here was they got a guy just like Matt Barkley, but younger, who Josh doesn't have to learn from every day, but can do the exact same things that Matt Barkley did as a backup. I think the biggest surprise, honestly, Sal, in the draft was the Bills didn't trade. You know, If I could bet on something Amazing. going in, it'd be that Brandon B. would make a move. Uh, what did he say about, uh, I'm sure he tried, but uh, how did it yeah. end up that they didn't make any trades? Yeah, I told him that. I said, uh, you know, I think you're the first Bills GM that hasn't made a trade in quite a long time in a draft, but he said it wasn't for lack of trying a couple of different times. He gave two specific examples. He actually said they were going to move up in the third round to take Zach Moss. They, he, he was falling. They wanted them. They could not find a trade partner. And lo and behold, Zach Moss falls to them anyway in the third round. The other one's interesting. Now, this has everybody kind of chasing clues and trying to be Inspector Gadget around, you know, Buffalo Bills Mafia, which is he said there was a point in the draft where he had a deal worked out with an NFC team, specifically said an NFC team, for a player they targeted, but just before that NFC team's turn came up to say, okay, we have the deal, the player they were targeting was off the board. Now, he says that, and everybody tries to figure out who it is. Then we get a little more clue today. He said today, on our radio station, it was for an offensive lineman. That's who he was targeting. So he did try to – we just don't know when that was. It had to be on day three, though. I'm positive it wasn't day two um, for Epinesa. Uh, it would have been too costly for them to move up in, in round two, I think, the way that he was talking. He also said, by the way, they almost moved down once, which was interesting – but the reason he didn't was because the team he was going to trade with, they wanted, um, they wanted to give up a future pick. And he felt there was too much value left on the board, and he wanted an extra pick this year. 
Sal Capaccio is our guest, WGR, the Buffalo Bills Radio Network. Uh, Epineza, let's discuss him a little, Sal, because it seemed everybody at One Bills Drive was thrilled that he was sitting there at 54, and a lot of people felt like he was, you know, first-round talent that ended up there. So I guess kind of a two-part question, why was he sitting there at 54 for the Bills, and, and what did they see in him that uh, others did not? I believe, Brent, that if we have a normal offseason and we don't have – the pandemic, and we can have visits and workouts and pro days. I believe that A.J. Epinesa is not there at pick 54, and he's gone by that. I don't know if he goes in the first round, but I think he goes at least before the Buffalo Bills select in the first 54 picks. And the reason is he did not have a very good combine. He was slow in the 40-yard dash. He was over five seconds. He did not have a pro, have a pro day at all in order to try to correct that. And then he wasn't able to get in front of coaches and GMs and scouts to kind of talk about it to see what kind of person he is. So even Brandon Bean said, you know, he thinks so. He, he dropped because teams had to go more on that information. But look, they, when does a defensive end run 40 yards in a football game, right? You don't. So you only have to run basically 10 yards to get to the quarterback. And they love the fact that he has this length. He's very, he's, he's got long arms and he's very smart. He's heady. And you know, when you don't have necessarily the athleticism or the bend or the speed you can make up with it with those other traits. It, some guys, they have a lot of bend. They have a lot of speed and athleticism, but they're not as long. They're not as smart. So they put themselves in bad situations, and that's why they really like this kid. Sal, going around the AFC East, uh, what did you think about the job the, the Dolphins and the Jets and the Patriots did? All interesting because Miami made the move for Tua, as we expected, but had a lot of picks. The Jets had to restock at certain positions, and I think they did a good job there. And, of course, New England, what were they going to do without Brady? And, lo and behold, they did not take a quarterback. Well, let's start with with uh, Miami. You know, getting Tua at five, to me, it, it was going to be Tua. I, I mocked them going there because I thought that they just they did too much work on getting Tua for about a year, basically. And, you know, he doesn't have to come on the field right away. They can let him sit behind Ryan Fitzpatrick. But anytime. You have as many picks as the Dolphins have had, especially early. You're going to get good football players, and they did. I was just a little bit curious why you know they didn't maybe go running back late in the first round when they went with a defensive back. They put so much money into that position anyway in the offseason. So it seemed like it was already a position they didn't necessarily need, but yet I know they traded for Breda later, so you know, it made a sense to do that. Um, I, don't, I didn't necessarily love Austin Jackson as a tackle, but he's still a good player, and you know, they got some good players around the board. Most of the guys they got, I think most people said they were just like really good character guys, hard workers. They'll fit right in with what Brian Flores wants. As far as the Jets, um, you know, I like some of the things they did as far as the players they got. You know, Denzel Mims could wind up being really good. He's kind of a boomer bust prospect to me. But I was curious why they didn't go more wide receiver. They, they really concentrated on offensive line in the offseason. And then they get Becton, who I think is a, the, the right kind of pick for them. But Mims was the only receiver they took, and I think they need to do a little bit more work there. So we'll see how that works out for them. And, of course, they took a quarterback just like the Bills did to come in and you know be the backup and compete for it at least with Sam Darnold. As far as the Patriots, maybe the most surprising of the three-division teams because you know they don't take a quarterback at all. I thought they might take Jalen Hurts uh, in round number two. That didn't happen. And now it looks like they're going to go to camp with Ryan Hoyer and Jarrett Stidham, even Jameis Winston's probably off the board now. It looks like going to New Orleans. It looks like Cam Newton's off the board, according to reports today. So that's what it looks like. I know they added some UDFA quarterbacks. But the other part is with the Patriots that really makes me, you know, I think it stood out to me. You know, their first pick was a, a kid from Lenore Ryan. Now, I love Kyle Duggar. But Kyle Duggar, to me, isn't going to step on the field and be an impact player in the NFL right away. There's too much of a learning curve for him to go from that level. I think, I do not think the Patriots are tanking. 
I think it's too hard for them to do that when you have the guy picking the team, the players, is also the guy coaching the team. And I don't think you can, you can mesh with that. But I do think he's willing to understand that they might not be as good this year and develop players, and that's why you saw a guy like uh, Kyle Duggar and a kicker and some players that might take some time to develop. Sal, one last thought from you. It's a unique draft by every stretch of the imagination, given the circumstance we're in. 55 million people watched. It's the highest-rated draft ever. And I think part of that was we were all kind of waiting to see if something was going to go bad, right? Like all these technical issues, how are they going to pull this off? And they did. Credit to them, over $100 million raised for COVID relief. And a lot of people are saying, like, maybe the draft doesn't have to be this huge spectacle it usually is. And who knows if people are going to be ready to go back to what it was before. Thousands of people in the streets and a bigger and you know more extravagant thing year in and year out. How do you think the draft is going to be going forward? Did they adjust to it as it needed to be this year? Or are we going to see some longstanding changes from how it was done this year? I really enjoyed the intimacy of the players at home with their families. I think that's something that really we hadn't seen as much of with the higher draft picks obviously being on stage. But I also miss them being on stage. And I do. I, I, I think, you know, the draft, I've been to a couple NFL drafts. And I don't know if anybody's ever been there, but it's a great party. It's really cool. It's, it's a celebration of these young men and what the culmination of everything they work for. And it's hooping and hollering for people. And I haven't been on the location like they have the last few years in cities. I went to when it was in New York City. But I miss that part of it as well. So, first of all, I want to say I commend everybody from the production side of television who had this thing go off without a hitch really seemed like that was, that is not easy to do. It wasn't easy to do. I was told that <laughs> a couple of different things, Brent, interesting. All the players, they were sent a hat from all 32 teams. So they had one when they were drafted. Uh, I, I'm guessing they had to keep them, but they were also sent all the video and audio equipment they needed to go on to the, um, their interviews and right. calls yeah. with the, the network and stuff like that. So there was a lot of moving parts here. And it's hard to put that together. So I think going forward, what the best approach would be is to somehow, however they do it, sprinkle in both of that. I don't think they want to go away from the hooping and hollering and celebration and on stage. That's awesome stuff. The draft is made for TV. But, man, that intimacy with the families, that was awesome, too. Maybe you just have less guys there. I don't know. Maybe you, uh, you have to find a way, though, because I think that was really cool. Sal, all the best to uh, your lovely family. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll definitely catch up down the road. But thanks for coming on with us today, as always, my friend. Okay, buddy, I'm going to go find out if the UFOs are going to attack us yeah, right now or yeah, what. Please do. Please do. I, Thank I, you. If, if it's going to be by the end of the show, let me know so I, I can, <laughs> I can be ready. I'll keep you right? in the loop. Thank you for that. Right. That's our buddy Sal Capaccio, WGR.